Canada's men's soccer team is playing in its first FIFA World Cup in 36 years, only the second time we've qualified for the event. And unlike 1985, when we didn't manage to win a single game, this group is looking to put Canada on the world soccer map. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Post-media national soccer writer Derek Van Deest, who is in Qatar for the World Cup, joins me to discuss Canada's road to get there, how well we could presumably do, and some of the controversies hanging over FIFA and the event. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, even Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Derek, we're on the eve of Canada's return to World Cup play at this year's tournament in Qatar. It's been a long 36 years since Canada last appeared in the tournament, but the journey to this tournament itself has been its own long, arduous story. What has gone into this moment for Canada soccer? Yeah, this is a big moment for Canada soccer, for the men's program. Like you said, it's been a long time. 1986 was the last time they qualified. The only time, actually, previous to this, that they'd qualified for a World Cup tournament. Uh, that tournament was short for Canada. They played three games, lost three games, didn't score a goal, and it took them a long time to get back here. Now, this is this is probably the best Canadian men's team uh, ever fielded, the most talented anyway, and I think there's a lot of factors for that. I think some of the new professional leagues bringing up the MLS, the CPL, things like that, but more giving kids more opportunity to play, and I think you're seeing the fruition of those leagues in this team. Uh, but I think what's exciting about this team is, is the way they did it. They didn't just uh, qualify uh, by getting one of the three spots, by getting the third spot in CONCACAF, which is usually the goal for Canada. CONCACAF, the region, uh, encompasses North and Central America and the Caribbean. They're given three spots to qualify for, and then there's a fourth spot that they can kind of battle it out against uh, a team from another region. And in Canada, just the way the, the ranking system worked and the qualifying system worked, they were kind of on the outside looking in, so they had to kind of play their way into that final eight-team qualifying group. Uh, so they had some extra qualifying games that the United States and Mexico and, and Costa Rica and some other teams like that didn't have to play and some travel that they didn't have to make. Canada had to go to Haiti to play a game. Uh, they had to play a couple other games in, in Florida and in other group, group games. But saying all that, going through all the travel and going through all those games, Canada was able to top the group. They finished ahead of Mexico and ahead of the United States, which I think is something that uh, head coach John Herdman and the, re- and the rest of the team could really take pride in, that they didn't just squeak into this tournament and just barely qualify. Uh, they kind of kicked the door down, and uh, they're coming in here as the best team in CONCACAF, and I think a- that opened a lot of eyes, and a lot of people in Qatar here are talking about Canada. And what's the feeling among Team Canada itself? Like, what do the players and coaches have to say about making it to this point and in the fashion in which they did it? Well, it's interesting because you would think that this team would be just be happy to be here. You think that this team would be, wow, we qualified, we're happy to be here, we made it for the second time. But there's there's a quiet confidence confidence about this group that they don't just want to be here and participate. They want to actually do something. They want to win some games. They want to advance to the second round. They want to they want to make some noise. And so I think you can see that that confidence in this team. They they had come together during qualifying, and and no one believed that they could finish first in qualifying except for them. And they believed it, and they accomplished that. Now nobody thinks that they're going to get out of their group. Um, they have a very, very tough group, probably the, the toughest group uh, all around here in the, at the World Cup. They have Belgium, uh, who was a, once a number one ranked team. Belgium made it, uh, finished third four years ago. They have Croatia. Croatia made it to the final four years ago. So they have the, fi- the finalists and a third-place team. And then they also have Morocco. Morocco is, is playing in their sixth World Cup. 
Um, they're usually one of the best teams in Africa. And it's funny, I, I arrived in Doha today and uh, I was wearing a, a Canadian a golf shirt. And uh, right away, a Moroccan spotted me, came up to me and he wanted to talk about that game against Morocco. So Morocco has been talking about Canada for the last little while. So that's going to be an interesting game. Um, but it, it's a tough road. But I wouldn't put anything past this Canadian team because they've accomplished a lot more than anyone thought they would. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, as you mentioned, it's a it's a tough group. It seems there's a couple tough groups. We could talk more about the tournament more broadly in a little bit. But Canada's in a tough group, but they did finish first, as you mentioned, in the CONCACAF qualifying. Could they surprise fans and and soccer watchers and make a play for the elimination round? Like, I get that we're talking about some some pretty strong teams they're playing against. Could they prove competitive against them? I think they can. And looking at the, the groups and the way they're structured, usually a win and a tie will get you through to the next round. And so when you're looking at who they're playing, uh, Belgium is, is in another stratosphere. Belgium is among the elite of the elite. They're up there with the Brazils and Argentinas and, and, and teams like that. So Belgium is, is a bona fide tournament contender to win this tournament. They just have their, their, their lineup is star studded. So, it's going to be interesting to see where Canada kind of matches up with against Belgium. But to ask Canada to maybe get a tie or a win against Belgium, that's a, that's a tall ask because Belgium is such an experienced group. They've been here. They've been around. Uh, they've played big tournaments, and, and, the, and the core of that group is still here. But when you look at Croatia, Croatia, they made it to the final four years ago. It was kind of like lightning in a bottle for them. Everything was going right. The ball was running their way. They were getting the calls. They were, every break was happening for them. But that team is a little older now. That team was a, was a veteran team back then. Four years from now, they're a little older. Their best player, Luka Modric, um, he's 37 now. He's still their best player, but he's 37 now. So that team is a little long in the tooth. So a lot of people think if Canada is going to pull off an upset, it'll be against Croatia just because of the speed that they have and the and the young players that they have and the talent that Canada has. That's the game that they have to try and get a point out of that. That's the game they have to get a result. And if they can get a result of that out of that Croatia game, then that sets up a basically a winner-take-all probably against Morocco. Win that game against Morocco, and, and you, you could advance. So I think that's the way Canada's looking at it right now. And Morocco's a talented team, but not a lot is known about their players. Most of their players play at home in the Moroccan League or play throughout the leagues in Africa. So not a lot is known about their players. All you know is that they are a very cohesive group and they've been here before. They'll have that experience. But I think that's what Canada's looking at. They need four points. Yeah. Now, for you, looking at this Canadian team and, and you know, there's a lot of names that have been been thrown around, especially through some of those CONCACAF qualifying games in Canada that people were really, you know, hyped up about. Who for you are the players on Team Canada in this tournament to really watch for? Well, I think it starts with Alfonso Davies, uh, Edmonton-born, uh, sorry, Edmonton-raised. Uh, everyone knows kind of Alfonso's story. He was born in a refugee camp in Ghana, moved to Canada when he was young, and then uh, the family settled in Edmonton where he became kind of uh, a superstar uh, in, in the, growing up through the Edmonton Youth Leagues, and then now he's playing for Bayern Munich in Germany. So he's basically uh, the biggest name on, on Team Canada. Now, the issue with, with Alfonso Davies, though, is that he pulled a hamstring about just over a week ago playing with Bayern Munich in one of their games, and he sat out the last two games of Bayern Munich. And it looks like uh, it'll really depend on how that hamstring is healed, whether or not he can play in all three games that Canada has. Now, it's going to be interesting to see whether John Herman thinks, okay, let's save him for the last two games where we need a result, or whether he, he tries to play him all three games. So I think that's going to be an interesting 
storyline here, but Alfonso Davies is, is, is world renowned now. Everybody talks about Alfonso Davies and people think Canada and right away they think Alfonso Davies, but another really good player is, is Jonathan David. Jonathan David plays in France for Lille. He's another rising superstar, 22 years old. Um, he's doing wonderful things in that French league. Uh, won, a, won a French league championship with that team last year, scoring a lot of goals. So he's another big name that could really burst out in, in, in this tournament. And I would say a third one is, is, a, is a young player named, named by Tejan Buchanan. And Buchanan has really kind of come up in the last year and a half, and he's really kind of started to, to, to get into that superstar role. He was playing in the MLS, and now he's playing in Belgium, and he's playing top minutes in Belgium with, with Club Bruges. So those are the three guys that I think are going to stand out, and then we'll see how kind of the other guys fit in, the rest of the team. There's a lot of talent on this team. But to me, if uh, outsiders talk about Canada, they'll be talking about those three players. We'll be right back. Now, Canada's men's coach, John Herdman, many people know in this country, but now both for his work helping the women's program become a powerhouse globally and now helping get the men's team to the World Cup. What has he brought to this group and, and how has he kind of changed the men's program and what does he have to say about his own accomplishments? Well, John, and I was speaking with John Herdman, he's a very humble guy, but I think right now it'd be, it would, it's fair to say that he's probably the best coach Canada's ever had. Uh, probably both men and women, which is which is kind of an interesting thing to to say. Um, Herdman is the only coach, the only person to ever coach a women's team at a World Cup and then go and coach a men's team at a World Cup. So he has that going for him. Um, he's had success everywhere he's gone, everywhere he's coached. He, when he started with New Zealand, he had success. Came to Canada, the women's program turned that program around. Came to the Canadian men's program, turned that program around. Uh, and you talk about to the players about what was the difference, what's made a big difference between four years ago when the team struggled to win games. And now, and, and almost to a man, they'll say John Herdman. John Herdman turned this program around. He went and recruited players that had dual citizenships and, and players that, for the for the most part, wouldn't come play for Canada. Stefan Estacchio, for example, uh, Portuguese. He was born in, in Toronto, but he grew up in Portugal. And he was convinced to come play for Canada uh, when, when that kind of window of opportunity to play for Portugal uh, went away. And so he, there's a few players like that that John Herdman has convinced to come play for Canada, which is something rare because before uh, it was basically play for anyone but Canada. So I think he's done a lot for this program. He's really got to be commended for this program. And to be honest, people are looking at what he's done, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if he got some offers uh, after this tournament, depending on how Canada did to go coach somewhere else. Now, looking at the tournament more broadly, this event in Qatar has raised some eyebrows, you know, whether it's the the move to November and December due to the absolute scorching summer temperatures and uh, up until now, recent regret about awarding the tournament to Qatar on the part of former FIFA boss Sepp Blatter. And this follows controversy around awarding the event to Russia in 2018. Does FIFA still have a way to go to restoring its image when it comes to the World Cup? And do you think it's learned lessons from some past controversies? Well, you hope it did. You hope it would. Um, basically, FIFA gave this tournament to the highest bidder. And, and Qatar was the highest bidder. And, and they, they kind of looked at the money first and then everything else second. And I think that was the issue with the Qatar uh, World Cup bid. It's just they, they just came over the top with the bid. And no one else could come close with the amount of dollars that this small country uh, was able to, to give FIFA. And it's a small country. There's only about 3 million people that live here. And all the stadiums, they built eight stadiums, and all the stadiums are within 40 kilometers of each other. So 
if, if you're looking at the center of town, you can actually see the stadiums uh, all around. So it's going to be an interesting World Cup. Um, and yeah, you're right. They had to move it to November. Usually the World Cup is played in June and July. That's when the international break is. That's, uh, that's after all the European domestic leagues usually end at the end of May. And so then in June and July, you have your, your international schedule. And that's where they, they schedule the World Cups. Now, you can't play soccer outside in Qatar in June and July. It's just the temperatures reach up to 50, 55 degrees. It's, it's not possible to do. So they had to move the tournament to November, and they decided to do that. They moved the tournament to November, where it's it's today it's a balmy 27, 28 degrees with the humidity. So it's hot just walking around. Uh, I can't imagine what it's going to be like trying to play soccer. But it's still reasonable between 25 and 35 as opposed to 45 and 55. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the tournament does. Once the ball starts rolling, people seem to forget about everything else that's happened uh, here. You know, there, there's issues with uh, human rights issues that have been happening here. Uh, people have asked about they had problems with migrant workers and the building of the stadiums and how they, they claim that so many migrant workers, thousands of migrant workers have died building stadiums. But uh, I think so far from what I've seen, they've done a fantastic job here. Uh, I know I've been to tournaments before where they're still hammering nails in the stadiums uh, the day before the tournament. It looks like everything's ready to go. Uh, the volunteers have been great. The media center is unbelievable here in Qatar. It's probably the biggest media center I've ever seen. Um, and they're expecting just thousands of journalists coming in here to cover this tournament. So I think once the ball gets rolling, people will forget about everything else and, and just focus on the soccer. But yeah, hopefully FIFA has learned some lessons, but it's tough when someone comes over the top with the kind of money that uh, Qatar did, it's tough to turn that down. And then we're looking at what happened with that, with a lot of corruption scandals and things like that with, with FIFA. So it, it, it's tough. It's tough when you have that big amount of, of cash and money um, to not find corruption somewhere. So you're hoping that they're cleaning up their act and, and perhaps this new administration and people will. Does that kind of play into the idea of, of awarding the tournament to North America in 2026 with U.S., Mexico, and Canada hosting the event? Is is that a sign that, that maybe they're looking for better bids or, or quote-unquote, cleaner bids? I think so, but I think part of the awarding Canada and U.S. and Mexico the uh, 2026 World Cup was to appease the Americans because the U.S. was one of the teams that was beat out by Qatar for this World Cup. So they had bid for this World Cup uh, and Qatar beat them out. So there's, it's not a coincidence that the indictment and the investigation and everything into FIFA corruption generated in New York. Like it started in New York after um, the United States was denied the bid. So there's, that's not a coincidence uh, that happened there. So I think FIFA looked at that and say, okay, we have to give this tournament back to North America. The U.S. has the infrastructure now. They have that. They have the MLS that's been there. They're building soccer-specific stadiums uh, and and just fantastic facilities in the United States. And I think that's what one of the tough things was for Edmonton to compete with some of these facilities and these stadiums that they built in Atlanta and Los Angeles and and big centers like New York. And and they were trying to to, to get the bid in, in, in kind of an aging Commonwealth stadium. But I think that's uh, that's one of the issues why they decided to go back to North America. They're expanding the tournament from thirty from thirty two teams to forty eight, so that uh, they could throw a bone to Mexico and Canada. But for the most part, the the, the big tournament, the the main gist of the tournament in four years will be the United States, and I think it had a lot to do with them getting passed over for this tournament. 
uh, by Qatar. Now looking at, at the tournament itself, I mean, we talked a lot about Canada. I know that's a lot of Canadian soccer fans will be curious to see how team Canada does. But when you talk about the world cup, uh, you know, there have only been, I believe eight countries that have won the tournament and, and, you know, some more than others, obviously who, who do you suppose are, are kind of the, the top three, four teams at, at this world cup and, and what can we expect from them? Well, it's always going to kind of be the same, the same guys, uh, same teams competing for those tournaments. I think it's going to be, it's going to be Brazil. It's going to be Argentina. It's going to be Belgium. Um, Spain's in there as well. Uh, obviously Italy didn't qualify. So that's going to be, that was a bit of a surprise. So Italy hasn't qualified, but it's going to be those, those teams. And, uh, I think that's uh, it, it's it, those teams are so close to you know, the Germanys and stuff like that. It, it, what de- what depends on winning the tournament is not necessarily the skill, but sometimes luck or refereeing or things like that uh, that kind of plays a big difference when those teams are playing each other. Who comes out of that tournament? But eight teams have won it. But it, you're looking at it's basically uh, the Italians aren't here. Uruguay hasn't won it since the 30s, since the 50s, I guess. Um, so it's kind of by like the six-team group with maybe a couple of outsider teams, maybe a Portugal uh, that that has never won it. Like I said, maybe Belgium that has never won it. So there there are some contenders, but it's usually there's kind of different tiers, and the, the top echelon team. Those are the teams that the winner is going to come from. Well, I know there's a lot of soccer to watch in the coming weeks, so and definitely we'll be following uh, your reporting on the ground there in Qatar. Derek, thanks for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Ten Three is produced by Tyler Dawson. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Derek Van Deest. More from his World Cup coverage at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.